Amen. Isaiah chapter 27, and we have continually been saying the gospel of Isaiah, and for some of you, you may be going, I don't understand that, that's New Testament, and the truth is, is Isaiah points to Christ. Isaiah points to Christ in the prophecies that are there. It is a gospel pointing to Christ. This section of scripture is closing a section of chapters of 24 through 27 that in general talk about the kingdom of the Messiah that ultimately triumphs and rules. And it starts off in a very interesting way, and we we touched a tiny bit on it last week if you were with us, but we're going to go pretty in-depth on the first verse specifically uh, because it's so important to understand the fact that God defeats all demonic forces, that all evil is blown up to shreds, and that needs to be remembered. All over the world, in every continent, there are stories about dragons. Dragons are in the, you know, some would call it folklore. Some, you know, would would just say, hey, that's, that's there in the past, and that story, and that story, and that story, that story. But the truth is that... What we see here is, is interesting in this word Leviathan. And if you look it up, it, it ends there in verse 1 with, He will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. He will kill the dragon or the monster of the sea. And what we see here is language that lets us know of the coming day of the Lord. This phrase is repeated over and over and over again in this chapter. In that day, or in that day, in those days, in a day in the future. All the following things are going to happen. So we come to this concept of the day of the Lord. And here in the day of the Lord, we have an epic battle. A hero struggle between the Lord and this monster, the Leviathan. In that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword. Even Leviathan, the twisted serpent. And he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. We've mentioned this before, but in the book of Daniel, the sea represents something. The sea represents this rolling, churning noise of darkness in the nations. It's really the mass of the the Gentile nations and with this great unknown in it. and, And it's uncontrollable and it's unpredictable. And it really sounds like today. The nations seem uncontrollable, don't they? The nations seem unpredictable except for the fact that we can predict they're pretty much going to do something opposite of the word of God. And you see that. And Daniel 7 specifically pictures four beasts, if you know that chapter, one after another coming up out of the ocean, out of the sea to oppress the people of God and the Jewish people. Revelation 7 picks up on the exact same images 
It's a picture of a dragon standing by the sea and calling forth of the sea a beast. And this beast from the sea will be, in some sense, this terrifying world leader who will organize his people, the peoples of the world, against the people of God. And many call this the Antichrist. So there's this biblical warrant here for seeing Leviathan as a symbol for both the wicked empires themselves, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greeks, the Romans, and the dragon that's behind all of them. And that's really the key here. Who is the dragon that is behind all of them? Satan. Too many people get stuck on all of those things and not realizing who's behind all of this. It's Satan. Satan is behind all of this. He calls them forth out of the sea to do his bidding. And this verse says that God, the Lord, will punish Leviathan, slay the monster, the dragon of the deep. So God is going to fight, and he will maybe win? No. He will win. It's a battle yet in the future, in that day. Now, God's quest and his conquest is going to be amazing. The, the, the pagan armies are going to come against his people. And what is God going to do to those pagan armies? He is going to blow them up. The language actually has, it's, a, it's pretty kind of yucky language in there. It really, the, the picture of it is dismembering the, the armies. Slaying them is dismembering them limb from limb. But in the end, what it's all about is he's going to sever the whole thing. He's going to destroy Satan, and all of Satan's people are going to be destroyed with him. So here is the connection then to chapter 26 that we were in last week. If you look at the end of 26, it, it describes the end of the world and the earth disclosing uh, the bloodshed that had been on it and all the suffering of God's people and how God is going to reestablish, actually establish righteousness in the end. And so this is a conquest that the Lord does, both in time and as we live through it in redemptive history and at the end of the world. God is active now. He's not waiting to be active, as some believe. Oh, no, he's active now. But in that day, at the end of the world, everything changes. If you look back in Israel's history before Isaiah, for example, the Red Sea crossing, the same kind of language that we see in verse 1 is used concerning the Red Sea crossing. For example, in Psalm 74, speaking of that, you divided the sea by your strength, you broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters, you crushed the heads of the Leviathan, you gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. 
you know, Pharaoh's army is defeated by the splitting apart of the Red Sea. God splits apart the Red Sea, makes a path through the sea for his people to escape. And then you have that in Psalm 74. And in the end, the dragon language is also reestablished in the book of Revelation. In chapter 12, you don't have to turn there right now, but you can look at it uh, you know, when you get home or whatever. Take a look at Revelation 12. And it depicts this war going on in the heavens between Michael the archangel and Satan. And Satan's not strong enough. He's thrown down to the earth that it says in Revelation 12, Now and the great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. So, there you've got the dragon. There you've got the serpent. There you have Satan, in case you have any doubt who this is talking about. This dragon is thrown down, the one who leads the whole world astray. But later in Revelation 12, he opens his mouth, the dragon does, and spews forth this yucky river that's supposed to inundate and overtake the people of God. It's, It's Satan's last attempt, right? And the earth opens its mouth and swallows that river. So the approach I'm taking here, just to lay the groundwork for the rest of the morning, the Leviathan is both the dragon who is Satan and the rivers of armies that come forth to slaughter the people of God. And in the end, who wins? Anyone? I kind of hope you would find that out. If you don't understand the book of Revelation, for example, simply, the book of Revelation can be summed up in two words. God wins. God wins. And the ultimate victory against this dragon we see in Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In slaying the Leviathan, the the Lord vanquishes the great symbol of chaos. The great symbol of chaos, the great symbol of antagonism against God. We live in a day and age, and I think everyone in here would agree with this, We live in a day and age when it appears that the powers of the world are winning. Right? But they will not be victorious. God triumphs. God's people thus triumph. Those who have trusted in Him will be preserved. Those who continue in their sin are going to be in hell. And we don't like talking about that. But that's the sad part. We should talk about that. Because if we really love people, don't we want to tell people, you don't want to go there. You see, those who rebel against God, who oppose God in the manner of the Leviathan, will be defeated. In that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword. What is the sword of the Lord? Matter of fact, I was, I was looking around this week. Uh, 
Zach was actually here uh, doing the all-important job of cleaning our carpets. And Zach and I were wandering around, and, and the truth was, I, I was cleaning up here. It looks really good, by the way. <laughs> uh, I'm available for your home at any time. <laughs> we were talking about this because there's actually not a lot taught, uh, it, it, there's just not a lot of commentaries or anything that really talk about what is the sword of the Lord that's going to rip apart the Leviathan, that's going to cut it apart. Uh, there's, there's three adjectives that are used here, right, when you said the fierce, great, mighty sword. Some of your translations may say hard, which means, you know, this, it battles, but there's no dents in it. There's no scratches in it. It doesn't break. It doesn't get dull ever. It's hard. It's strong. It's mighty. It has power. It never changes. Well, in and of itself, that looks like a pretty good sword that I wouldn't mind having. But we know through Scripture, many other passages, what the sword of the Lord is. We are to take up our sword of the Spirit, which is what? The word of, the word of God. Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living, active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And so the sword of the Lord is His mighty Word. By simply speaking His Word, He dismembers the Leviathan. Which, if we recall, going back to Genesis, the first chapter, how did he create the world, the universe? He spoke it into existence. His word. That's a pretty powerful sword. By simply speaking the word. And so there is already in this section in verse 1, and we're going to talk more about this at the end of the sermon, the, the Leviathan has been dismembered, he's been slain in some sense, he's being slain right now, he's going to be slain yet to come, God just didn't do one quick victory over the Leviathan, he takes this drawn out battle, he wants to really just take his time with it, it's in his time. And that's what we have here with his word. All God has to do is simply give the word and the Leviathan, as I would say, is toast. Literally. And then what is the result? Well, the result of all of this lies in this beautiful section of verses 2 through 6 in this vineyard that fills the whole world with fruit. In our backyard, at, at the place that we rent, there are, are two different uh, grapevines back there. And, and they're a lot of fun to have if there's rain and it grows the grapes correctly. But you have these grapes back there, and our son was back there one night, uh, a few last week, Micah, and Micah comes the next morning, he's like, you sh Dad, you should have saw it. You should have saw it that there was what he, and you'll have to understand, I'll have to explain this in a second. He's like, Dad, there was a trash panda 
back there. You guys know what a trash panda is? It's a raccoon. Okay, trash panda. Just remember that. So there's this trash panda back there, Dad, and he's and he's just coming. He's he's on top of this this wrought iron fence, and he's he's balancing on it, and he's getting down, and he's grabbing the grapes off, and eating them. And I was like, oh, stop it. And I was like, well, did you try to get rid of him? He's like, no, man, it was too cool to watch. <laughs> but it's this picture of these flourishing vines and, and just incredibly sweet and, and awesome grapes that you need to picture in this. In that day, a vineyard of wine, sing of it. And it's in this picture in verses 3 through 6 through 9, really, after that, where this is, it happens in the day of the Lord, when God moves out, acts powerfully in history, when God gets going and does the final stuff in this fruitful vineyard. It's the day of the Lord looks ahead to the end of the world here, and we have a song about a vineyard, but it's a very different one than the song of a vineyard that happened earlier in the book of Isaiah, which was in chapter 5. And if you want, you can go back to Isaiah 5, because I'm going to read part of that right now, to give the compare and contrast of what the vineyard was before the day of the Lord and what it will be after. In Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7, let me sing now. For my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I had not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now, let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns are going to come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. And so you have this picture of a worthless vineyard that's a complete mess. And it's not the fault of the master. It's the fault of the people in it. And so then God says in Isaiah 5, he's going to judge, judge that vineyard, right? Right? Take it away, the wall of protection, it's going to be trampled. He's going to literally break down, is what it's talking about, the wall of Jerusalem. And the invaders are going to come in and squish it. He's going to take away its wall, hedge of protection. The invading armies are going to trample it. He's going to command the clouds not to rain on it. And this is the avenues of grace. The richness of God's grace is symbolized there in the rain, God's provision for his people. And then all of a sudden, they're not going to hear the word of the Lord. 
I'm not going to hear it. He's going to shut down the prophets. There won't be any, won't be any words from the Lord about it. And that was a couple hundred years, remember? That ended up happening. And he ended up with briars and thorns, and that goes back to Genesis chapter 3. That's curse language, the curse that happens. The land will be cursed. Can I just tell you I don't like Isaiah 5? I like Isaiah 27 in the vineyard there. The Lord waters this vineyard continually. See, we're, we're in a drought right now. That picture seems really nice to me. Just this gentle, constant, refreshing rain. All right, I'm going to leave right now and go up in the mountains and see if that's happening right now, because that'd be awesome. But that's the picture, right? It's not too much. doesn't flood it and send it all down the hill. It's perfect. It's a perfect picture. Continually provided for. Constant outpouring of power and grace and fruitfulness. Every single moment in this vineyard, as Daniel read it for us earlier, the vineyard gets everything it needs to be maxed out in fruitfulness. I, the Lord, watch over it continually. I will not allow anyone to trample it or harm it. Sounds completely different from Isaiah 5, right? Where he takes the wall down and says, go for it, trample it. It's not worth anything. That's fantastic. I'm protecting this. And we've seen this language continually in this section of Scripture where he's the rock, he's the protector, he is the one that watches over us day and night. Nothing can harm the believer. He does not slumber. His wrath is gone. That's what it says. And it goes on then in verses 10 and 11, for the fortified city is isolated, a homestead forlorn and forsaken. Like the desert, there will, the calf will graze and there will lie down and feed on its branches. When its limbs are dry, they are broken off. Women come and make a fire with them for they are not a people of discernment. Therefore, their maker will not have compassion on them, and their creator will not be gracious to them. And this flips back all of a sudden and explains what's going to happen beforehand, before the fruitfulness. And it's difficult, because the truth is, is what's going to happen is Israel is going to be stricken by God, smashed hard for their sins. And it's going to be like a day, as it says, where the east wind blows, a a dry desert wind that causes everything to wither in its path. It's describing the exile conditions. It's describing how, you know, if you go to Jerusalem like 10 years later, it's just like nothing's there. It's desolate. We have some areas around here like that in California where 
many, many years ago, they built some towns, and you go out there now, and the dust and the sand and the dirt has covered much of it. And that's, that's the picture that we need to wrap our heads around. Do I want to be in the lush environment of continually being fed by God, or do I want to be in the desert, desolate, dry, and dead? The book of Lamentations, Jeremiah looks over the city when the exile had happened, and he said this, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. She had become like a widow who was once great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a forced laborer. What Isaiah is doing here is he's reminding them of what's happened in the past. He's letting them know it's going to get hard in the future again due to sin. But then the day of the Lord is a whole different ballgame. He's, as we've said, as the theme of this incredible book, is giving them comfort. Because they had been living under the, the boot of evil empires for centuries, over and over again. And there was this, always this residual fear of revolts and, and reprisal. And God's promising them, hey guys, that's all going to be gone. Never, ever again. Just remember what it looks like and remember what's going to happen. And then he jumps into verse 12. In that day, the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. It will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown and those who are perishing in the land of Assyria and who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain of Jerusalem. You catch that phrase, one by one? That does two things. Gives you the extent of the scattering. I mean, you're scattered. God's people scattered. But the greater truth is on the other side of the relationship with God. As a loving father keeps track of a prodigal son. God follows the steps of each of his children gives personal attention. Catch it? Personal attention. One by one. Jesus showed us that expression of God's love when he spoke of the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. Every single one of them had what? One. And the common point, one of the common points of the parables in 
Luke 15 is the persistence of God in searching and waiting in one person who is lost. He finds us and he brings us home. Will one of God's elect ever be lost? No. Nehemiah 1.9, But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote parts of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. God does the collecting, and he doesn't miss a soul. And in that picture of the great trumpet blast in verse 13 there, the great trumpet will be blown. Yes, I had thoughts of bringing the trumpet out again (laughs) and blowing the trumpet, but I figured once in a millennia is enough. Uh, You don't need to agree with that. I heard that. I heard that. There's so much symbolism in the blowing of the trumpets, isn't there, all throughout Scripture? The camp of Israel directed by the blowing of trumpets in Numbers 10. The feast of trumpets took place on the first day of the seventh month, prepared Israel for the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement prepared them for the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the picture of the joy of the future kingdom. And Isaiah here envisions this incredible day when God's people would repeat the miracle of the Exodus and deliver his people from their bondage. And in Matthew 24, verse 31, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And what will he do? And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Oh, there's Bob. There's Bill. Man, I never knew. Yeah, he's a believer. That's incredible. The trumpet will sound them to Jerusalem and announce God's victory over their foes, and they will worship the Lord. And the kingdom, as we have seen, will be like an endless feast, a holy day of worship as the people rejoice in the Lord. And I've heard that this section of Scripture has been mentioned more than once today. Maybe there's a reason. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, Isn't it sad that that's how so many people live? Just live for today, try the flesh and the blood, live because this is the only hope I've got is right now. The perishable does not inherit the imperishable. Says it right there in verse 50. Behold, verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must 
put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord, because who is watching over you every single day? Who is the one that is tending the garden that you are a part of? You are a vine, or you are a branch, he is the vine. You are connected to him. And what this all comes down to, once again, is we're going to talk a little bit more about Jesus. Who is the Lord? Who is the one that dismembers the Leviathan? Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2. Having shared flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. I, in the Bible, I love as a Christian, as a believer, I love the word destroy. God destroys everything that's bad. So as a Christian, we should love the word destroy. Evil, destroyed. Death, destroyed. And he does it today as well. And I want to give you a picture of how he does that today. By advancing his kingdom as missionaries, as evangelists, as believers go out and take the good news of the gospel, proclaim the good news, Satan's kingdom shrinks every single time. Satan is frustrated. He, he can't stop the elect from coming to faith in Christ. And ultimately, by his second coming, when he comes back in Revelation 19, there's that sword, this fierce, great, powerful sword coming out of his mouth. The rider on the horse he slays the wicked. And what it's really saying there, he's going to speak the word and it, evil, Satan, the great dragon, the Leviathan. He speaks the word and he's gone. He speaks the word, the word of the Lord and the armies that oppose him are gone. He just simply speaks the word. 2 Thessalonians 2, 
The man of sin is the one whom the Lord will destroy by the splendor of his coming and by the word of his power, the breath of his mouth. And Jesus establishes his people, the fruitful vineyard, Gentiles, those of us who are not from a Jewish background, have the beauty of being grafted into this fruitful tree, this root system, nourishing us with God's power. We are flourishing. Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. We are to bear much fruit. For apart from him, we can do nothing. It's in Christ that we are the fruitful vineyard. It is in Christ that we are the fruitful vineyard. Question one, are you in Christ? Question two, if you are not, why not? Question three, if you are in Christ, are you living like you are in Christ? Are you being the fruitful vineyard? There's no fear. It's just share the word. It's a pretty powerful word. It's a word that drives out demons. A word that makes evil run the other direction. It's a word of hope, of truth, and perfection. And it's a word of life for those who follow him. Let's pray together.